Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Thank you, Dan. And I hope you have your Bibles open and keep them open. You're really going to need to be in the Word of God today. I'm going to be walking you around the book of Galatians. So if you could uh, keep that Bible open and let's, uh, let's be in that scripture together. I'm going to ask you a question and I really want to get you thinking about this. And I'm going to bring us back to this question towards the end of the message. So think about this deeply, okay? Not, not one of the usual when a pastor asks you to think about something and you you're, you don't actually think about it. You know you're not actually thinking about it. This one, actually think about it, okay? Does God want you to try and be good? Can I really want you to think of this? Does God want you to try and be good? Now, the answer to that question forms the understanding of the problem that's happening in the church of Galatia. This is the letter called Galatians. It's written to the church of Galatia. This is started by the Apostle Paul, and he is returning back there with a letter because he's hearing about all of these things that are happening at this church, a church that he had begun. And it's a problem that was happening then as much as it's actually happening now, but it's gotten more sophisticated. It's gotten less obvious in modern age than it was back in the first century. And we're going to uncover that problem, but what we're going to do is we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at, the, that, we're going to look at our role with each other in the church, what we are to do, and then we're going to discover how we can do it. Now, one-third of this message is going to be to unpack what we are to do, and two-thirds of the message is going to unpack how we are to do it. So I really want you to hang on because now we're going to go straight and deep into the meaning of the gospel. All right, what are we to do for each other in the church? I want you to look at your text with me, if you would, Galatians chapter 6. Really important that you've got the Bible open. Now, if you're watching this online, let me encourage you to stop right now, get your Bible open, and follow along just like everybody here is going to be doing. Look at the very first word in Galatians 6, 1, brothers. And all of a sudden, we are confronted with a, a fact that is, has good news and bad news, okay? The bad news is the church is a family. Some of you aren't catching my drift on this. The good news is the church is a family, 
We can hurt each other in the family, right? Just like you do in your own nuclear family. Not everybody in your nuclear family loves each other well all the time. So just the same is true for the church. We don't always love well, but we need to learn to love better. We need to learn to have the heart of a family. So Paul starts out with a word that is a linkage back into the truth. The church is a family. Now, I have more good news and bad news. Ready? I'll give you the good news first. We are going to be with each other for eternity, Christian. Forever. Do you understand that a million years into heaven, I'm going to be knocking on your door again and going, hey, you want to hang out today? And a billion years in heaven, I'm going to be knocking on your door going, hey, you want to hang out with me today? Now, the even better, I told you it was good and bad. No, it's good and gooder, okay? Here's the gooder news. Every time I ask, you're going to go, that would be the best day I can imagine. But I don't think that might be your response right now. So how do we get to there? How do we get a foretaste, a preview glimpse of what we're going to have in heaven? We're a family, okay? We're family, we're siblings, we're children together of the Heavenly Father, which is why we need to learn to have the heart of a family in our church. Now watch, I'm going to say it this way. It's why we need to learn to be for each other. All right. Proverbs 17, 17, more good news, bad news. There's two views of this. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Here's the bad view, or the negative view, is that this is sibling rivalry, and every parent has a hearty amen, right? Your, your kids don't always get along with each other. So a lot of people take this to say that Solomon's warning us that there's going to be sibling rivalry. But there's another view. And in that other view, I think, is better news. That siblings are born for each other to help each other when days of adversity come, when there are struggles that come. Who better to respond than your own flesh and blood? Now, both views are in Galatians, and Paul applies both of them to the church. Now, just take your Bible, go back. You might not even need to turn the page. Look at chapter 5, verse 26, and Paul says, Let us, the family, the church, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, that's very interesting, and I don't have time to really unpack this, but whenever you have provoking one another... Whenever you have conflict with one another, well, first of all, it's coming from conceit. It's coming from pride. There's no exception to this. It's always coming from pride. And it looks in one form as envy. Just look at the chain in that. Paul's brilliant in this. Let us not become prideful, conceited, because here's what it's going to do. It's going to cause conflict. You're going to provoke one another, and here's how it's often going to look. It's going to look like envy, but you just don't realize it's envy. Now, that's the rivalry view of brothers in the family of Proverbs 17, 17, but, and Paul's warning us against it. But now, here's what I want you to do. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. You get the other view of Proverbs 17, 17. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So brothers are born for times of difficulty. 
Church siblings are born for adversity. When one person in the church has fallen down, other people need to move in mercy toward them. Those who can help. See, we've got both from Proverbs 17, 17 here. All right, now we get to do something fun. We get to look at some of the Greek words. What's the Greek word for transgression? Well, the word here for transgression does not mean a deliberate, premeditated, pedal to the metal, I'm going for it, no one is stopping me kind of sinning. That's not what this word transgression means. This is a sin of someone who is tempted and foolishly steps his foot into a trap and it springs closed on him. This is the one who stumbles into sin. And all sin, it does injury to our souls. Every sin is going to injure your soul. But, now listen, not every sin is created equal. Which is why there were sacrifices in the Old Testament for deliberate, intentional sins. And then there were different sacrifices for unintentional sins. So not every sin is created equal. The word transgressions does not refer to going to the bar with a goal of hooking up with someone for the night. It does not refer to someone who is doctoring the books to cheat on their taxes. Both of those are premeditated sins. This word is for the one who foolishly, bit by bit, gets into debt and becomes a slave to the lender. They're trapped. This is the sin of someone who is walking along in their Christian life. They stumbled because they dropped their guard. This is the sin of someone who goes to work. They're having a good day. And then all of a sudden, there's a moment of stress. They blow their temper and they damage a relationship. That's this kind of sin. That's what it means, transgressions. And what are we to do for each other when we stumble, when we slip into sin? Look at verse 1 again. We who are spiritual should restore. What's that word restore mean? It means, well, it's, it means to restore someone to their former condition. But let me tell you how it was used. Here's two of the ways it was used. One, it was used by doctors to reset a broken bone. And it was used by fishermen at the end of their fishing day to go back over their nets and look where some of them got ripped when they dragged against the reef on the bottom and you repair the net. That's the same word for restore. And how are we to do it? Well, if you have a broken bone, do you not want to go to a doctor who is filled with gentleness? If you have a cavity, don't you want to go to a dentist who is gentle? We are to restore each other. When someone stumbles into sin, it was not premeditated. They stumbled into sin. We who are spiritual need to have gentleness and go to them. So here's the picture. Here's what Paul is giving you a picture of, and me as well. A fellow believer trips up and sins. Well, who's going to be better at resetting that person than one who is spiritual, one who is spirit-filled, one who understands the power of the gospel, filled with the gentleness that the Spirit himself produces? Well, what is gentleness? Don't you want to know so that you could be this way with people? It's used for that word for a couple things. It's used for a lot of things. Here's two examples. One, that soothing wind 
at the end of that hot Palestinian day, they all went up on the roofs of their homes. They lived often. They had parties up there. They ate their meals often. On the roof, they didn't have central air. It was too hot in the homes. They had outside the wall stairways that went up to their roofs, and they would eat up there, and they would go up there and sometimes sleep on particularly hot days to get that soothing, cooling wind. It was also used for a medicine that made you feel better. So this word gentleness means to soothe. It means to make somebody feel better. So when someone in the church stumbles and they sin and spirit-filled brothers and sisters come alongside, listen, they don't come alongside in wrath. They don't come alongside in judgment. They don't come alongside and I told you so. I've been warning you against this. That's how our flesh wants to go. That's utterly ineffective in the church. They come alongside with gentleness to reset and heal. This is why Martin Luther said that when you go to restore somebody, run unto him, reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. But there's a warning. Keep watch on yourself. Do you see it in the text? Do you know why? Because when you are in the position of helping a broken sinner restore, you're in a position of power. And your flesh is going to get a taste of that and want that and begin searching out, where can I have this again? And the more that you begin to restore for your own fleshly reasons, the more pride is going to come into your heart. That's the danger of every counselor. It's the danger of every pastor. It's the danger of every spiritually mature Christian. You must watch your heart and do not let it be filled with pride. And I'm going to show you how you can keep pride from your heart. Point number two, how can we help each other well? Now, I just told you what we're to do, right? Here's the picture. Somebody sins. They stumbled into it, the trap closed, the devil enticed them like Hansel and Gretel, little candies all the way to the oven. They fell into the oven. What do you do? If you're mature, if you're spiritual, you are filled with the spirit, you know the power of the gospel, you go to them to return them to their former state. You do it with gentleness, like a soothing wind. And the whole time you're watching your own heart. Do not let there become pride. But how can we do it well? Well, let me start this way. And this is the bulk of the message, okay? That was the mechanics of what we were to do. Here's how we could do it well. I, have a, I had at one time a 2003 Honda VTX 1800 motorcycle. It was the biggest motorcycle cruiser on the planet at the time. It had pistons, two of them, the size of Maxwell House coffee cans. It had 103 foot-pounds of torque, 117 pounds of, uh, or 117 horsepower. This thing was a beast, okay? However, I'm riding down Richmond Road, and it was, Richmond Road used to be in much worse condition than it is now. Lots of little dips, lots of bumps, lots of swales, and I'm going down the road, and every once in a while, my motorcycle just cut out, lost power, sputtered, I limped it home because I wasn't too far from home. I went up into the garage and I did what every modern day genius does. I Googled it. 
You know you do the same thing. I Googled it and immediately got back what I thought might be the answer. I went down to the garage. Oh, my phone just went, okay, Google. Man, this thing's surveilling me. This is crazy. It just did. I went down to the garage. I took the motorcycle seat off, and I looked right where people said on the forums. And sure enough, I wiggled the battery terminal, and it was loose. You see, what was happening was every time I hit a bump, I lost connection to the battery and it shorted out the electrical system, and I lost power. Now, I want you to hold that, because I'm going to keep coming back to that a little bit. I want you to hold that illustration in your mind. If we are to help each other well in the church to learn how to bear their burdens, learn how to restore them, if we're going to do that well, now listen, this is the actual thesis of this sermon, then we need to make sure we help each other tighten up their contact with the gospel. Now let me skip ahead before I come back. I tell you all the time, and I tell you from experience, because if you ever come up into my office, you're going to see bookshelves and bookshelves of books. I've got a lot of books. I've read a lot of books, and not all of them have been very good. And I'll tell you what sets a book apart from good to bad. A lot of my books, now I wouldn't say a lot because I'm pretty careful. Some of my books sound awesome. They're full of empirical data, full of statistical analyses, full of strategies, full of all kinds of, of really helpful, it seems, platitudes. But they don't lead to Christ. They don't uncover the gospel. They don't tighten my connection to the power of the gospel. And they're utterly unhelpful. While they sound good and they're titillating, they're entertaining, they seem helpful to read. In the end, I'm the same person at the end of it that I was at the beginning of it. But then there's a whole host of other books, the better books. And by the way, I migrate those kind of books to the very top of my shelf that you take, have to have a ladder to get to. All, if you come into my, my room, you'll see this. All the books you can reach are the better books. Here's what they do. They point me to Jesus. They uncover the gospel. They talk about the true power of transformation. Those are the books I have access to. Those are the books I return to. Those are the books that help me prepare these sermons. And the preachers that do that well are the preachers that I listen to. I don't listen to preachers that give you a really fun narrative storytelling sermon. I don't listen to them. Because I find that while they were enjoyable and entertaining to listen to, they did nothing for me. Well, it's the same thing with you, and same thing for me. If we're going to really learn to help people in our church, then we ourselves have to be fully connected, fully understanding, have the power of the gospel in us so that we can help people reconnect to the gospel. If they're not saved, to connect to the gospel for the first time, and if they're saved and they've lost their connection, to reestablish that connection. That's the only way you can really, really Help. Now, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Kyle preached from uh, Galatians chapter 5, and he told us what the law of Christ is. The law of Christ, you can sum it up. One word. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Love. The entire law 
And a lot of theologians put it in three parts, okay? The moral law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, all the sacrifices, and the civil law. How you execute divorce, marriage, um, discipline. All those are the governmental civil laws. All three of them form the law. All three of them, if you put them in a big pot like sap, and you boil and boil and boil, and it, gets, it shrinks in volume, shrinks in volume, until you get to the sweet, pure essence that we call it syrup. Well, that syrup is love. You boil the law down, you get to love. The entire law is about how we can love. So to understand how to bear burdens, we really need to get a better understanding what was actually happening in the book of Galatians. What's happening in this church? Well, here we go. You ready? Get your Bibles. Chapter 1. We all got to do this. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So there are some influential people in the church that are, that are turning the church to a different gospel. They were adding into the gospel, which Paul restates. Here's the gospel, chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified. That word means to be made right with God. A person is not made right with God by working, by performing, by effort, by keeping the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. So here's what happens. When a sinning non-believer has his eyes opened by the Spirit of God called regeneration. When their eyes are opened, and all of a sudden they can see, oh my goodness, I am a rebel. I am a sinner. And there's nothing that I can do to fix this. And it earned for me the wrath and the judgment of God. When your eyes are open to that, you are terrified. If your eyes are truly open to that, you are terrified. But here's how good God is. He will not let you long be terrified. Not even a second, probably, before he opens those same eyes to your salvation that is possible for you. It is Jesus Christ. It is only Jesus Christ. You see, the moment that someone believes that forgiveness is possible for them through the death and only the death and resurrection of Jesus, that person is saved. And here's what happens. They are united to Christ. Now, if I ever do your wedding, or whoever did your wedding, I'm going to tell you something that some of you don't know. The moment that God covenantally joined you and your spouse's heart so that there was no seam, so there was no division. Anybody that looked at that heart, if they could see it, would see only one heart. Let the two become one. The moment that God did that was not when the officiant said, by the power invested in me, I pronounce you man and wife. No, that's not when. It's when you took your vows. Do you understand that? It's when you took your vows. That's the moment you're united. Well, I'll give you an example. I've given it to you before. Think of a woman who was so poor she could not even buy a loaf of bread. But the next day, 
She owns a bread factory. What happened? She married the owner of the bread factory. And everything that belonged to him now belongs to her. Why? How? It's because she's united to him through marriage. Christian, don't you understand that when you believed, you are united. You were united instantly to Jesus Christ because of your faith. And the moment you're united with him, then all of what Jesus has, the love of the Father, the riches in, Christ, the riches in his Father, the inheritance, the pleasure of his Father, the patience of, he doesn't need the patience, but he's got all of that, all of that attitude of the Father for him, it now becomes yours. You have it to the same measure. Why? Because you're united to him by faith. But here's the problem. One writer said it this way, 90% of all professing believers, 90%, I have no idea if this is accurate, but in my experience, I think it's a pretty high percentage, 90% of all professing Christians live their life based on the formula you will see on the screen, believe, obey, saved. Friends, that's not the gospel. You might be looking at it now going, what's wrong with that? That's not the gospel. Your connection on that battery will come loose. You will sputter. You will be powerless. Nobody gets saved that way. No one says, now listen, everybody, so many people say, well, yeah, you got to believe in Christ. And then they'll say, but you got to be baptized. You got to complete your sacraments. You've got to try. You've got to really be serious with God. You've got to show Him you mean business. See, what their formula is, believe, obey, and then you're saved. That's not the gospel. This is what Galatians was uncovering. This is what they're doing in this church. The true gospel is believe, you're saved, and now you have the power to obey. You believe you are united to him, the very life of Jesus. Jesus comes into you by the Holy Spirit, and he begins to exert his power as you begin walking with him and abiding with him and seeing him and, and glorifying him and beholding him. And all the while, he's pouring more want to so that you've got the ability to do the ought to. I had a guy down in Georgia where I was a pastor, and I've had a lot of people, men and women, come to me and say, I cannot defeat pornography. I just can't do it. I fail over and over. And here's what I do. Now listen, this is Galatians 6. You've got to learn to do this even better than I do, okay? If you're going to help them, you've got to reconnect them to the gospel. Don't give them your platitudes. Don't give them your well-meaning advice. It is worthless. It won't do anything. It might help them feel better in the moment, but it won't be transformative. The only thing that will transform them, form them is being reconnected to the power of the gospel. Here's what I say. How did you get saved? Well, I put my faith in Jesus. Did you try to be saved? No. Did you do something to be saved? No. Did you clean up your act before you were saved? No. Did you do more good works and bad works and then get saved? No. Well, if that's the way you were saved, then why have you abandoned that 
and try to live out your salvation with your works? Why are you trying harder? Why are your feeble efforts to defeat this sin even in your mind? Why don't you go back to the way you were, be, you were saved? You're united with Christ. It's his power that's in you. So behold him, pursue him, abide with him, love him. And as you do, he's going to increase the desires in you for holiness and for purity. And he's going to expulse in you the desires for sin. D.L. Moody once said, he was giving an outdoor sermon, and he said to his audience of over a thousand people outdoors, he's up on a stage, he held up an empty glass, and he said to everybody, how do I get the air out of this glass? And people are shouting up all their ideas, all their strategies, hook up a vacuum to it and pull that air out, and they're giving one after another after another, and finally D.L. Moody says, let me show you how to get the air out of that glass. And he picks up a pitcher of water, and he begins pouring the water in, and it gets fuller and fuller and fuller and starts to spill over the rim of the glass, and then he says to them, the air is gone. He says, you want to get sin out of your life? Then be filled up with Christ. Abide with him. That's the only power that can expel sin. That's the expulsive power of the gospel. Every person I know who is in a stronghold of sin is not pursuing Christ with abandon, is not praying as if their soul depends on it, is not luxuriating in the presence of God. They're trying, they're getting accountability, they're putting software on, but their hearts, evil desires, always find a way around them. No, the answer, friends, is that we get new desires. Delight yourself in God, and he will pour his desires in your heart. Psalm 37, 4. See, this is what Paul is saying. The true gospel is believe, be saved, and obey, because you now will have the power, the want to, to do what you ought to. This is why Paul said in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Well, how does this even work? You've got to be wondering, because right now I would imagine everybody is going, I am so convicted. I need to get power to overcome these sins. They just saddle me with guilt. Well, here's what Paul says, Galatians 2.20. Let's all read it. Says, I've been crucified with Christ. Do you not know that your flesh is nailed to the cross? It was nailed to the cross with Christ. He took it with him. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, it's not, you don't have to live by your own power anymore. You've got the power of Christ living in you. Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. Why would you abandon that, he says? Look what Christ has done for us. For freedom, Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. But you keep submitting again to slavery. Well, what's the freedom that he's talking about? Look at chapter 3, verse 23. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You've been freed from the law. You've been freed from the demand that you be holy like God. And the utter futility of it, because you came to Jesus in spiritual bankruptcy. You became poor in your spirit. You realize, I cannot do what the law says, but I know one who not only can, but did. 
See, don't you know the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus is the only one that kept the entire law. And he kept it perfectly. And when he died on that cross, listen, you've got to get this. When he died on that cross, even 2,000 years later, when you put your faith in him, it's as if you were there with him. It's as if you were nailed on that cross with him. And Jesus, or Father, the Father, viewed the Son in that moment when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, which is Aramaic for, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you know what he was doing? The Father was taking all of your sins, all of my sins, and transferring them onto Jesus. He became the sin bearer. He became sin. Do you know how the father viewed him in that moment? Oh, this is terrible. Think of it personally. He viewed Jesus as having committed all the sins you did this last week. You did this last month, this last year, your whole lifetime. He viewed Jesus as the one looking at porn. He viewed Jesus as the one cheating. He viewed Jesus as the one who impatiently screamed at somebody in wrath. He viewed Jesus as the one flipping the bird to the driver on Route 78. He viewed Jesus as the liar that you have been and I have been. That's the power of the cross. And in that moment, when you put your faith in him and you became united to him, in that moment, there was a transaction, not only from, but for. We not only have been saved from death and judgment because Jesus became our sin bearer, but we've been made righteous. We've been remade for life. So God, now listen, God views you. Not as the one that looked at porn. Not as the one who flipped the bird. No, he views you because you're united with Jesus as the one who perfectly kept the law. Don't you see the mercies of God? Don't you see what pulls your heart to him? Don't you see the power that is yours when you behold the one on the cross? Why every time we do communion, we are told to proclaim the death of Jesus. Why? So that our eyes can look up at him and obliterate our, our, our pride and bring us back to humility and fill our hearts with love and gratitude. That's the power of the Lord's Supper. And that's the power of the gospel. So what do we do? We bear one another's burdens, chapter 6, verse 2. All kinds of burdens, right? Grief, loneliness, anxiety, depression, failure, loss. There's all kinds of burdens that we all bear. And these can, these can become so heavy that you can't even walk. But I'm going to tell you the real burdens that Paul is talking about. Here's the real burdens. It's grief and loneliness and depression and anxiety that you try to bear in your own power or in a false promising power. And it bows you under its weight. Don't you know Matthew 23? Don't you remember the words of Jesus to the Pharisees? You tie up 
heavy burdens and you put them on the shoulders of the people and you will not lift a finger to help them. This is what Galatians were doing. Yes, you got to believe in Jesus, but you've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to become this. You've got to manage that or you're not going to get saved. That's the burdens that Paul's talking about. It's any Christian today that says, you know what? I've got to do better or God's not going to bless me. Why? He's going to bless you in Christ. Your source of blessings is Jesus. Your hope of blessings is being united with him. He's not going to love you more when you clean up your act. He's not going to love you more when you figure out how to overcome a sin. He already loves you as much as he can. Listen, he loves you to the same measure that he loves his son now. All because of Jesus. That's the gospel. When you understand that, it frees you. It knocks the power of sin out of your life. It pulls the love of your heart to Jesus. And it puts a whole new desire in your heart. But look at verse 4. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. You've got to direct your brother and sister to the gospel. You help each other, but in the end, you can lead the horse to water. You cannot make him drink. I can give a person the way to the gospel, but they've got to choose it themselves. Each one has to test his own work. Each will have to bear his own load. In the end, it's me and God. Will I believe? Will I live out the gospel? Now, let me tie everything together as I close. I'm going to return to the question that I asked, and then I'm going to read to you a hymn, an old, old song. Does God want you to try and be good? The answer is no. And the more you try and be good, the more you will sputter, the more powerless you will become in your Christian walk. Jesus has done it all. He doesn't want you to do that. He's not asking you to do that. There is no power in your own effort to be good. It's faith that Jesus was good in your place. And he was perfectly good. You see, Ira Sankey sang a song. He was a lifelong associate of the same D.L. Moody that I gave you the illustration earlier. He was his song leader. And Ira Sankey used to sing this song, and I'm going to read you the lyrics, and I want you to really, really listen to these as I close. The song was called, Lay Your Deadly Doings Down. I bet that'll never make the top 100. Lay your deadly doings down. Now here's what goes. Here's how it goes. Nothing, either great or small, nothing, sinner, no. Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. It is finished to tell us die. Yes, indeed, finished, every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? When he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done. Hearken. To his cry. Weary, working, burden one, Galatians 6. Wherefore toil you so? 
Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago, till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. So cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Do you understand? Do you understand the gospel? Your burdens are overwhelming because you're loose with the gospel. You've lost connection. Somebody in our church needs to come to you with a soothing wind of gentleness and show you how to get tightened back up because it's the power of Christ who has already done everything that begs to be unleashed in your heart and you will find the victory over every burden that you are bearing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this passage. Lord, I don't know, I don't think there's anything better than preaching on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, thank you. And, Lord, I pray that we would understand it. Lord, teach us to be a church that has a heart of a family. Lord, that loves one another. When we see each other stumbling into sin, Lord, let us remind them of the gospel. That you already died for that. They don't need to wallow in guilt. They don't need to wallow in helplessness. There's power available. We can lay our deadly doings down and trust in what Jesus has done for us. Lord, if anybody here is bearing a burden that has bowed them down in life, Lord, free them. Show them what you have done for them. Show them who they are in Christ. And if there's anybody here that has not yet turned to you for salvation, Lord, show them. Open their eyes. Let them come to the altar, so to speak, and get married with you, be united with you, to have that power, the riches, the life of Christ in them. We love you. We pray that you would teach us these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.